This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey folks at the New Books Network, you're listening to Darts and Letters. We're a show about the politics of academia, expertise, and intellectual culture. I'm glad you found us. We're a new-ish member of the NBN. They've been syndicating some of our golden oldies all summer. But now we're back with regular programming. We've got a whole bunch of new episodes this fall. And this is one of them. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear more, I suggest you subscribe then you won't miss a beat. You can find us at Darts and Letters or wherever you find your podcasts. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. I am very excited to say this. Today on the program, we have Professor Noam Chomsky, He is arguably the most famous intellectual alive today. I'm going to speak to him about technocracy. Before we get to Professor Chomsky, I want to tell you a story about technocracy. It's actually a story about Elon Musk and why he is the way he is today. But it starts with his granddad, Joshua N. Handelman. Like me, he lived in Regina, Saskatchewan. But unlike me, he was a technocrat. Today, people mostly use that word to describe obtuse policy wonks or centrist Democrats. Basically, it's a slur. Nobody really calls themselves a technocrat. But Handelman did. In fact, he was literally part of a political movement called Technocracy Incorporated, and he was head of the Canadian chapter. Handelman and Technocracy Incorporated hoped to turn North America into a continent-wide technate. This would be a techno-utopia governed by science and expertise. Handelman's movement was led by a mysterious figure named Howard Scott. There's not a lot known about his uh, background, and he, he was a bit of a fabulist in the sense that he made up stuff about himself. He created Technocracy Incorporated in 1933 and led it until he died in 1970. And he was both its biggest asset and its biggest liability. This is Ira Basin. He's a radio producer that works at the CBC. He made this excellent documentary called Welcome to the Technate. We called him up to learn more about technocracy and what he learned making the piece. Ira tells us that Howard Scott was this eccentric, imposing figure. I'm talking 6'5". He really stood out and he really commanded a room. And this really comes across when you listen to him. He was a great speaker. He had a great deep voice because he was a chain smoker and chain smokers often have, you know, it's kind of cruel that way, um, often have great voices for radio. Now, as far as technocracy's ideas are concerned, 
we're so far left that we make communism look bourgeois. Scott's radical claim was that engineers should run society. And like any good engineer, he presented his claim in the most technical terms. He made technocracy seem natural, almost inevitable. He was clearly very smart, not as smart as he thought he was, but he was a very smart guy. Could ream off like facts and figures, was apparently trained as an engineer. In a lot of ways, it really was an inspiring vision. He wanted to throw out capitalism and install a more rational political order. Plus, he was promising a life of plenty. He was making this promise when things couldn't have been further from that reality. It was the Great Depression. So they looked around, as many people did in the 1930s, and said, what's wrong here? Like, why, how could this possibly be happening when we have so much wealth and so much abundance and look at how much poverty and homelessness and devastation and hunger there is. And their answer was that the economic system and the political system had not made the shift from scarcity to abundance. Howard Scott thought that we humans hadn't really made any progress until the Industrial Revolution. And what he meant by progress was energy. That's what he based his whole political theory on. It was an energy theory of politics. It asked one simple question. Could humans produce more energy than they consumed? For the vast majority of human history, Scott said that we couldn't. But now, we were getting there. Remember that we stated years ago that when the producing mechanism in the United States, on or before the consumption of extraneous energy, reached 200,000 kilogram calories per capita per day, that when it reached that, the majority of healthy, able-bodied citizens would no longer be required to produce and distribute the physical wealth of this continent. Even though we had the energy, the wealth wasn't coming. Scott concluded that that was because the politics weren't suited to the technology. It's only a question of time, and a very short time at that. Because uh, every new advance on the technical field is producing more and more with less and less. And how are you going to distribute the great production of abundance of this technological complex to a social system that is back in the days of George Washington? That's the problem. And they cannot meet it under this system. Scott got these ideas around 1918. He was a bohemian living in Greenwich Village, and he met some very famous intellectuals there. One of them was Thorsten Veblen. Veblen's ideas really transfixed Scott. Veblen was this iconoclastic economist. He coined a number of memorable concepts, concepts like conspicuous consumption and conspicuous waste. Anytime you're condemning rich people for their profligate ways, you're probably using words that Veblen came up with. But Veblen is also very idiosyncratic. His anti-capitalism is not a Marxist one. It is not a revolutionary theory that pits workers against the ruling classes. It's much more focused on specific psychosocial pathologies, pathologies of specific elites and specific elite institutions like the corporation. Veblen looked closely at the top companies, and he saw conflicts there between the financial and the industrial elites. Basically, this was lazy owners versus industrious engineers. The owners were doing everything they could to maximize profits and minimize the amount of actual work they did. So they cut back production. The hardworking engineers were totally different. And so he came up with this idea that, in fact, rather than venerate kind of businessmen and politicians, that engineers would be kind of the vanguard of the new society. So he proposes this really strange concept, the Soviet of engineers. He actually gives engineers advice on how to overthrow the current social and political order. 
which was a kind of a, an odd sort of concept and one that not many engineers themselves bought into. This idea of the cult of the engineer kind of originated with Devlin and this was really the kind of foundation for technocracy. The technological complex of the United States is revolutionary and radical to the extreme. While the social United States, the social system, is reactionary, obsolete, and antiquated. And the struggle is between the technological complex and the social system on this continent. And the odds are that the technological complex will win, devastatingly and overwhelmingly. Scott took Veblen's ideas and built a circle of technocratic intellectuals at Columbia University. They called themselves the Technical Alliance. This was a kind of research group. They hoped to chart the entire U.S. industrial system. Scott did a lot of this kind of work, and it really excited people. The international workers of the world even commissioned him. Through all his research, Scott also became the chief evangelist for technocracy, and he was a good one. In the early 30s, technocrats routinely got glowing press coverage, more features even than FDR at the time. This is according to William Atkins' book, Technocracy and the American Dream. Basically, very briefly, technocracy was the darling of progressive intellectuals, journalists, and policy elites. It was one of the most exciting ideas of the time, even though their ideas were very radical. What they saw as the central problem was what they called the price system. And at the root of the price system was money. Money that was not rooted in anything, right? It was essentially a, a social convention that everybody agreed, okay, this dollar is worth so much. Scott proposed a radical new currency. The currency, which was not called money, but was called energy certificates, would be based on how much energy went into producing something. After you've determined how much energy there is within the technate, then you divide that by the number of people who live within the technate, and that gives you the number of energy certificates that you have to distribute. And you distribute them equally to everybody over the age of 25. It's a technologically enabled vision of perfect equality. And it turns out, didn't require that much labor, right? So in the technate, you wouldn't join the labor force until you're 25 years old. Then you'd retire when you were 45. In the meantime, you'd only have to work 16 hours a week and you'd get 78 days of vacation. There's a catch. This is not a democracy. It is a straightforward meritocracy. The slogan was, Government by science, social control through the power of technique. That means the most intelligent expert elite run the show. If you're not one of those select, you're going to lose some freedoms. But Scott wants to tell you, you know, the trade might be worth it. The most common fear of the American people is having their freedom of losing their freedom. How will technocracy compensate us individual liberty? Well, what freedom have you got if you haven't got the economic wherewithal to go with it? Scott had a couple of good years of press, but when the journalists started to look a little closer at him, they started to question some of his claims. They even found out that he didn't have any real academic technical training. At one point, he did run a factory, but it looks like he was fired for incompetence. Aside from his technical bona fides, he also didn't have the greatest of personalities. He gave this famous radio address in 1933, but he got so flustered when people started asking him difficult questions, he just lost his temper and refused to answer. This ended up being a huge embarrassment for the movement. But Scott's biggest political weakness wasn't his credentials or even his personality. It was his theory of change. He predicted that radical technological change would mean radical political change, 
but he didn't offer a program for how to get there. He thought that if you let nature take its course, technocracy will inevitably come. The role of the technocrat, then, is just to do the research to prepare for this transition. This incensed Veblen and many of the other technocrats. They wanted a real political program, and Scott just refused to give them one. Plus, this happened just when a radical new political program was being offered, the New Deal. A prompt program, applied as quickly as possible, seemed to me not only justified, but imperative to our national security. The New Deal was like technocracy light. FDR famously had an expert brain trust. He embraced radical progressive reformers, and he flexed the muscles of government planning to lift the U.S. out of the Great Depression. First, we are giving opportunity of employment to a quarter of a million of the unemployed, especially the young men who have dependents. But FDR also knew a thing about political organizing and political persuasion. He mobilized against the financial elites and he encouraged labor organizing. His administration created impressive propaganda, lavish buildings, and it funded radical arts and culture. FDR was basically bringing technocratic ideas and populist ones together. For some technocrats, that presented a very cool opportunity. For others, it was kind of a perversion. When Roosevelt became president of the United States and brought in the New Deal, uh, some of the people that were involved in the technical alliance went to the New Deal because they thought that they could you know, make changes. And Howard Scott wasn't interested in any of that. He wanted the sort of purity of the movement. And so there was a division in the early 1930s when some of these people went off to the New Deal and also had grown tired of Scott's kind of arrogance and, and um, megalomania. It's not just the New Deal. Some of the technocrats turned to Upton Sinclair's Socialist Party. Others formed these new technocratic groups with more compelling political visions. It's a total splintering. But Scott holds the course. And so they went off, and he was left and started this organization called Technocracy Incorporated in, in 1933 and led it for the rest of his life. Technocracy Inc. becomes a quasi-social movement slash research group. But all this splintering had really done damage to the movement. That very same year, in 1933, the press declared that technocracy is dead. Even though Technocracy Inc. does continue, it's really overshadowed by FDR and later by the Second World War. The post-war boom means there's lots of economic growth, so people kind of forget about technocracy. Life was good, right? And then you get to the 1960s, and Scott is still out there preaching technocracy. But in the 1960s, there were lots of other like protest movements that were going on that he really wasn't all that relevant anymore. And he died on New Year's Day, 1970. And, you know, one of the problems that they had is that he had no interest in training anybody to succeed him. And so when he died, they really had nobody to pick up the reins. And they've been a, you know, kind of a weird little rump organization ever since. Technocracy Inc. does still exist. Producer Mark Apollonia reached out to their youngest board member, Parker Duby. He's a PhD student in bioengineering, and just like the OG technocrats, most of what he does is research. All technocrats should study technocracy continuously. And so it's not just about going through the fundamental texts like the study course or the words and wisdom of Howard Scott, things of that nature. Basically, when I say study technocracy, it's not just that, but you also have to study everything that's currently going on uh, around the world all the times. And so I'm studying everything from uh, Native American culture to nuclear engineering sometimes. Uh, trying to Doobie says recruiting school. new members is uh, tough because the ideas are pretty complex. So yeah, Technocracy Inc. is definitely in a lull. However, I see that as we see more and more economic disparity, economic problems, economic woes, you know, it'll be what occurred during the Great Depression, individuals will start go looking for possible solutions to what they perceive as problems and will be one of the top. Which brings me back to Saskatchewan, Elon Musk, and his grandfather. 
For reasons I can't quite explain, it seems that technocracy held on the longest in Western Canada. Remember Joshua N. Handelman? That's Elon Musk's grandfather. Like I said, he was the Canadian head of Technocracy Inc. But he ended up leaving Technocracy Inc. during World War II. He left them because Technocracy agreed that the U.S. should collaborate with the Soviet Union in the fight against fascism. Handelman was such a staunch anti-communist, he just couldn't accept it. Then he turned decidedly rightward. Handelman joined the Social Credit Party. They followed the principles of C.H. Douglas. And guess what he did for a living? He was an engineer. Their social credit was basically handing out money. It was a kind of proto-UBI. I think of it as a less radical version of technocracy's energy certificates. But social credit gave technocratic ideas a different kind of spin. They weren't just engineers. They were social conservatives. They were like a party of religious right-wing techno-populists. They were anti-communist, pro-eugenics, anti-labor, and full of anti-Semites. In the end, their pitch worked a lot better than technocracy ever did. In 1935, they won government in the province of Alberta, and they stayed in power in one form or another until 1971. Handelman never did land a seat with the party, and he eventually just gave up on Canada. He thought it was becoming too socialist and too immoral. So he moved to the most moral place on earth, apartheid South Africa. Handelman became an aviator and an adventurer. He spent the rest of his days flying around Africa looking for a legendary lost city. Suffice to say, Handelman never found that lost city. The parallels here are so strikingly obvious. On the one hand, you have Joshua Handelman, the technocratic right-wing aviator. And on the other hand, you have Elon Musk, the technocratic right-wing space adventurer. Elon has texted that he, you know, he's, he's big on going to Mars and wants to not just go there, but colonize and set up a city of a million people and has referred to it as a Martian technate. It was not clear what he meant by that. Ira tells us that Scott wouldn't have liked Elon Musk. Musk is a capitalist, not a real technocrat. And that's definitely true, but I think that might be too static a definition of technocracy. Maybe there's something in Handelman's ideas that would lead one to the politics of Musk. Often, technocrats become disillusioned when people just don't follow their scientific theory of politics. So then they try and force the issue in a different way. Maybe they turn into state capitalism, like some of those New Deal technocrats. Maybe they turn harder to the right, like Handelman did. Or maybe, as we'll see later, they become technocratic capitalists. My real point here is that I don't think it's right to think of technocracy as something that's left-wing or right-wing, pro-capitalist or anti-capitalist. It's a way of seeing politics. Technocrats think that regular people need expert managers. Technocracy Inc. was one extreme version of that, but there are many versions all across the ideological spectrum. In fact, I bet there's a bit of it in you. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're college-educated. And there's a good chance you've thought to yourself, there's got to be a more rational way to organize our society. And if there is, what if we just put the smart people in charge? The smart people with my politics? Then we'd surely be okay. That's the allure of technocracy, and that's why so many people reach for it. And that's what this series of episodes is all about. We're doing three episodes back to back to back, and they are all traveling through technocracies, past, present, and future, left, right, and somewhere in between. We start our journey with Professor Noam Chomsky. That's after the break. I'm Gordon Kadic, and you're listening to Darts and Letters. Darts and Letters is proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. If you like what you're hearing, consider subscribing to our podcast. You can find us at dartsandletters.ca or wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
When I was thinking about this series, I knew there was one person I absolutely had to go to first. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Hi, Professor Chomsky. I can't uh, hear you yet. I think you're still muted. Can you hear me? I can. Can you hear me? Yes. Noam Chomsky. You know him as the path-breaking linguist and radical public intellectual. I think his work gets us right into the heart of the debates around technocracy. On the one hand, Noam Chomsky is a self-described, old-school, enlightened figure. That's the Noam Chomsky that champions free speech, rationality, science, learning, and critical thinking. In his famous 1967 essay on intellectuals, he wrote, It is the responsibility of intellectuals to speak the truth and to expose lies. But as you know, they don't often do that. Which gets me to the other Chomsky, the critic of the so-called experts. He also wrote in that 1967 essay, the cult of the expert is both self-serving for those who propound it and fraudulent. His early writing on Cold War intellectuals stems from his anarchist theory of knowledge and political authority. It's a theory that celebrates the expertise and the moral clarity of ordinary people. And it's a theory that downplays the convoluted ideas of those who rule us. For the rest of the program, I speak with Noam Chomsky on the place of technical expertise in a radical left project. We'll cover the anarchist critique of bureaucracy, the right-wing critique of bureaucracy, and much more. It's a wide-ranging discussion on Noam's philosophy of expertise, education, and popular reason. Well, I just wanted to start with a bit of a personal story, and it's the first time I ever interacted with you. Um, You probably don't remember, but I was first or second year university, and I was involved with an activist group that was supporting a flotilla to Gaza. And at the time, the right-wingers on campus viciously attacked us and slandered us, and it made it all the way up to the National Post, which is the kind of premier right-wing paper in Canada. And I'm not exactly sure why, but I sent you an email asking if you would write something in support of us, because I thought it would galvanize me and my colleagues. And you did. And uh, I was surprised and I was really touched. It made me feel good. Like what mattered to me mattered to you, no matter how small. So I just, uh, I always wanted to thank you for that. That's great. I once had the opportunity to support a Gaza flotilla in Gaza. It happened that we were there just at the time when a a relief ship was trying to come in with humanitarian aid and uh, blocked by the Israeli Navy and had a demonstration at the port, was able to speak about it. So wasn't the only time. (laughs) Might have been one of the ships that we were supporting. and, and, And we won that battle, I must say. But I wanted to start there. I mean, you're known for being quite accessible, responding to people's emails, going on on people's podcasts like mine, despite being kind of this stratospheric heights of uh, kind of intellectual life. It must take a lot of work. I'm curious as to why you maintain that ethic of being open, accessible, and supportive, sort of no matter how seemingly small the cause might be for a student like me, for instance. That's what matters in the world. It was put rather well by my friend, close friend, the late Howard Zinn, who once wrote that what matters in history is the innumerable unknown people who do the work on the ground that lays the basis for the great moments that sometimes follow. They're the important ones. So there couldn't be anything more important. So I wanted to ask you about the politics of intellectualism and technocracy in particular. And I thought maybe as a entrance to it to go kind of as biographical as I can. And one of the things that strikes me in a number of interviews that I've seen, you've spoken about working-class intellectuals. And and, and I have a quote here, and I thought I would just read it. You talked about, in one interview, the radical intellectuals of my childhood were different. They were working-class relatives in New York, mostly unemployed during the Depression. Though one uncle with a disability had a newsstand thanks to New Deal measures and was so able to 
help support much of my family. You go on to say that these intellectual circles were quite vibrant and in constant discussion about the latest performances of the Budapest String Quartet, the controversies between Stuckel and Freud, radical politics and activism, and on and on. So I was curious to learn a little bit more about these early intellectuals and how they influenced your own understanding of what an intellectual is and what their role is in society. It wasn't so novel. If you haven't looked at it, there's a great book by... uh, I think his name is Jonathan Rose. I can check it if I'm not, my memory is not quite right. It's about 19th century working class uh, reading habits. What were working class people reading and discussing in Britain in the 19th century? These are working people working, living in awful conditions. You know, read Dickens, for example. Uh, they were reading what we now call classics. In in fact, his conclusion is they were better educated than the aristocracy, which was uh, frittering away their time, uh, playing games at Oxford and so on. Uh, And he actually shows this. And it's not so unusual to come to the United States around the same time, mid-19th century, working class people who were literate but unschooled, they hadn't gone to school, were studying... uh, the labor theory of value as developed by Adam Smith and uh, David Ricardo, they hadn't heard of Marx and uh, working out ways to apply it to lay a background for their quite sharp and intelligent critique of uh, capitalist employment as a fundamental attack on the rights of an individual, their dignity, uh, their, their basic rights as in their words, free citizens of a republic. Sophisticated work. People never went to school. Uh, this is an old working class tradition. Uh, it took a lot of work to beat this out of people's heads. I remember in one of our episodes, we talked to Thomas Frank about populism, and he talked to me about populist periodicals uh, traded amongst farmers where they're discussing Shakespeare and Dante and, and things like that. But when you say it's beat it out of them, it's also beat it out of kind of the popular liberal consciousness that that working class people are intelligent at all or capable of self-governance. Where do you think that kind of strand of elitist kind of anti-populist thinking comes from for you? Well, we can trace that back a long way. Go back to the uh, first democratic revolution in modern times in England. mid 17th century. Uh, The way we're taught about it in school is it was a conflict between king and parliament and parliament finally won out and then came the glorious revolution and British democracy. Well, that's part of the story. Uh, The other part of the story was what about the population? Well, it turns out that uh, they had a very lively literature pamphlet literature publication was possible then. There were also itinerant workmen, preachers, uh, quite a lively intellectual culture. We have many of their publications, the levelers and others, but they were going all over the country. They were talking to people, as they put it in their pamphlets, who didn't want to be ruled by king or parliament, didn't want to be ruled by knights and gentlemen, but by people like ourselves who know the people's wants. That's what we want to be governed by ourselves, not you, not you, the rich and powerful. So go somewhere else. Mm. This was considered outrageous. The people who called themselves uh, the men of best quality uh, couldn't, didn't want to tolerate any of this nonsense from the rabble. Got to crush them. Well, let's go a century further to the next democratic revolution, the American Revolution. The American Revolution was what we know about is the founders, a small group of wealthy white male slave owners who gathered in Philadelphia and wrote the Constitution. In fact, by the standards of the day, a pretty distinguished group. 
but uh, they weren't the only ones. Mm -hmm. There were also the radical formers, uh, the ones who erupted in Shays Rebellion, for example. They wanted democracy. Uh, the founders didn't. Well, that's uh, the next step. We go on plenty more, I'm skipping a lot, but uh, uh, go to the 20th century. Same thing. Take a look at the leading liberal intellectuals, the ones who, the leading public intellectual of the 20th century, Walter Lippmann, who I've often quoted, mm -hmm. uh, wrote about all these things. He, he was a Wilson, Roosevelt, Kennedy liberal. Uh, his view was the same as the 17th century. Uh, the men of best quality have to be protected from the general population who are stupid and ignorant. We have to be, as he put it, protected from the roar and the trampling of the bewildered herd. And we have to do this. We can't do it by force anymore. So we have to do it by what he called manufacturing consent. Ed Herman and I borrowed the phrase for a book of ours, but it's Lippmann's. So in this episode, we're looking at the topic of technocracy both as an idea, but also as a short-lived movement inspired by Thorsten Veblen and others who gained a lot of prominence during the height of the Great Depression. And technocracy has a kind of intuitive appeal because it's a kind of politics of plenty. It is ostensibly egalitarian, but it's certainly not democratic, right? Because it's about experts being put in charge. And we were just talking about that earlier. I'm wondering um, when you first came across technocracy and technocrats and, uh, and what you made of them, what you made of people like Thorsten Veblen and then later Howard Scott and um, Loeb and, and others who were involved in really agitating for a, a political program. I read Veblen, was very much interested in him. Also, Veblenite economists like uh, Robert Brady, very fine economist background early 40s, but I myself gave a different twist to it, partly because of experience. I didn't see any reason why everybody couldn't be an expert. If I want my refrigerator fixed, I don't know how to do it. So I'll call in somebody who's technically trained to do it. Maybe somebody who never went through high school, but can do things that I couldn't possibly do because they have all kinds of skills I don't have. Everybody can be a an expert in their own domains uh, have sometimes lived uh, in rural areas. And it's just amazing to see the array of skills and abilities that people just have because of their, their lives. I used to go for summer vacations out to Cape Cod, and there was a guy there who would fix our small sailboat and things like that. And I got to know him pretty well. He told me that uh, uh, he once was suggested to him that he go to Cape Cod Technical College to learn how to do these things better. He went for a while and found pretty quickly that he knew more than the instructors did. So he just dropped down. Well, those are the kind of skills you get in places like that. It's true that you're gonna pick experts on particular topics, like in my own academic work, if I want to learn something about uh, Icelandic phonology, I go to an expert, somebody who studied it, but he's not doesn't have a more a position of greater authority than I have. We just share our expertise. So why can't that be true across the society? There are people who are particularly good at some things. I mean, if I have a heart problem, I'm going to go to a heart specialist not an auto mechanic, but doesn't have to be any uh, hierarchy of authority involved. So I don't think technocracy has to lead or even should lead to a hierarchically structured society, just a society where people pursue their own skills and interests, contribute to the general community with them. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I'm just thinking about the instructors at that university in Cape Cod not really knowing very much. It's funny because I was reading about Howard Scott and apparently... You know, he had some engineering background, but he was exposed to be a bit of a fraud and not an expert on on things. But about him, I think one of the things that's interesting is that, at least in this period, the IWW commissioned Howard Scott, and I think at one point he even uh, led one of their kind of research offices. Um, so there was this kind of socialist interest in technocracy, which leads me to sort of a question about why you think you know they might have been interested in Scott and more of a general question about what is the relationship between socialism and technocracy? Depends what we mean by socialism. If today what the term means is either Soviet totalitarianism or moderate social democracy like the New Deal, that's not what socialism was in, in its origins. Socialism was what I was describing before, the idea that the very concept of wage labor is utterly intolerable. You go back to the uh, Knights of Labor, first great labor movement in the United States, mid-19th century. Its slogan was, uh, those who work in the mills should own them. There's a large literature of what were called factory girls, young women from the farms who went to work in the Eastern Massachusetts mills. Same thing, we don't wanna be subjected to a master. We should run, control our own work, our own labor. The fruits of our labor shouldn't be taken from us by an absentee owner. That's socialism. Its basic idea was worker control over production, democratic control over other institutions. But if you look at real socialism, it uh, has no problems with technocracy in the sense that I described, mm -hmm. where there is technical expertise of various kinds, maybe fixing a refrigerator, helping on the farm, uh, whatever it may be, or uh, doing academic work or becoming a surgeon or whatever. But the point is there's no, these are delegated roles, totally subject to popular control. I'm Gordon Kadic, that's Noam Chomsky, and you're listening to Darts and Letters. After the break, I asked Professor Chomsky about the origins of his anarchism and the anarchist critique of unaccountable technocrats. If you're enjoying this episode, you're going to like the rest of our series. Next week, we look at cybernetics and the technocratic dreams of Allende's socialist planners. He's been helping the Chilean government create this computer system, this telecommunication system for economic management. And so if this is going to be, you know, a democratic socialist government with worker participation, the concern was, are the engineers coming in and are they building systems that could be abusive to the workers? Plus, we look at the liberal technocrats of the Cold War. Could we manage global affairs? The first thing they have to do is design a computer system that allows an analyst to push a button and get a report. And the daily report included things like, where's tension on the rise? What are warnings for areas of the, where there's a high probability of crisis? Make sure you're subscribed. You can find us at dartsandletters.ca or wherever you get your podcasts. Mikhail Bakunin is one of the founding theorists of anarchism, and he was a critic of technocracy before technocracy was even a word. Bakunin had this acrimonious debate with Karl Marx. It was about the role of an intellectual vanguard and the place of state planning in the revolution. In 1872, Bakunin railed against a red bureaucracy. He warned that it would just become despotic. Chomsky wrote that this was perhaps the most remarkable prediction in the entire history of the social sciences. He wrote that in 1977. But these ideas gripped Chomsky before he was even a teenager. 
So anarchism offers the most astute critique, I think, of intellectual and expert authority and domination of all stripes. And I and I read that you came across anarchism as a child, seeing and speaking to anarchists, mostly Spanish emigres in radical bookstores. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if you could sort of take yourself back a little bit to when you first discovered it. I mean, what was it like for you and why do you think it it appealed? Well, it's a long time ago, so <laughs> I remember the exact moment. We're going back uh, 85 years, but uh, we lived in Philadelphia. And by the time my parents would allow me to take a train by myself, say about 12 years old, I would take a train to New York. There was an easy train stay with my relatives, including this uncle who you mentioned, who had the newsstand, one of the most educated people I ever met, never got past fourth grade. So I, they had a small apartment. I could stay there and then spent a lot of time talking to him. Went down to Union Square, 42nd Street, which had the anarchist offices. In those days, Fourth uh, Avenue, downtown from Union Square had small stores, a lot of bookstores, secondhand bookstores, a lot of them run by people fleeing Europe. A lot were Spanish emigres. They were Spanish anarchist emigres. And I'd go into the bookstores, talk to the owners. They're glad to talk to a young kid, pick up pamphlets, and same in the offices. And just, uh, in fact, I got a lot of the literature that I later later used when I was writing about these things. So you wrote um, in the 70s that Bakunin made a series of analyses and predictions that may be among the most remarkable within the social sciences. Bakunin warned that the new class of intellectuals will attempt to convert their access to knowledge into power over economic and social life. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about his prediction and how he was able to make it, if, if it's indeed one of the most remarkable in the social sciences. This was a critique of what he saw as the Marxist intellectuals. You can ask how fair the critique was, but he was capturing something real. He said they're going to try to create a red bureaucracy, which will beat the people with the people's stick. It'll claim to be for the people. He was talking about social democracy too, but it'll be beating them. And they'll create the red bureaucracy, which will be the most repressive and uh, violent that we've ever seen in the history of the world. This is back in the mid 19th century. But he was pointing to something that's, uh, that you can see it's common. It's back to the men of best quality in the 17th century. You know, the nobles, just the church just had the power. Well, I should mention that Bakunin, who we quoted before, is uh, condemning the Marxist for developing a red bureaucracy. He called himself a Marxist. He accepted Marxist economics. So there's a, it's not that there's a sharp antagonism. If you look at left Marxism, Rosa Luxemburg, uh, Anton Panikuk, uh, uh, the people who Lenin condemned as uh, utopian uh, uh, intellectuals, uh, they, they were very close to the anarchists. In fact, when you look at the Spanish Revolution, which is quite telling, because it was a real anarchist revolution, it's pretty strongly supported by the leading, many of the leading Marxist figures. There was also already a split between the Leninists and uh, those who Lenin later called ultra-leftists, who were critical of Lenin's approach to revolution as based on a vanguard party that would be run by a central committee with the maximal leader taking over from the central committee. Actually, one of the ultra-leftists at, leftists at that time was Trotsky, who was quite critical of the Marxist tendencies, of the Leninist tendencies. 
So this is a struggle that goes way back. I was curious to learn a little bit more about what an anarchist philosophy of science might be. And you've been very critical of certain so-called left schools of sort of relativistic theories of science. And I, I don't want to kind of re-adjudicate that because I think people know that, but I, I don't know that people know as much what the kind of anarchist ideal of science might be like and science and, and sort of popular intelligence generally. But what, what is the beginnings of an anarchist theory of science? Actually, on this matter, I'm pretty conservative. Mm-hmm. You go to, I spent most of my life at the premier research institution in the world, MIT. You go to a good research lab, it's run on anarchist principles. Uh, people working together cooperatively, sharing ideas. There's no hierarchy. Uh, if a graduate student comes up with a smart idea, try to pursue it and develop it. I mean, I'm slightly idealizing, but it's not very different from this. That's the way, uh, that's the way science ought to work. Uh, it also ought to involve the general public. So, and if you go back to the 30s, my childhood, the uh, left intellectuals, mostly from the Communist Party in those days, considered it just part of their vocation to be teaching worker education courses. People like Bernal, uh, great scientists, were spending time uh, giving talks and lectures in workers' education groups, actually the kind that members of my own family uh, would attend, people without much education. But uh, mm-hmm. So you go from the free interchange of a really effective advanced research group to uh, talking to working people about the basic nature of science and mathematics. It's all a seamless web. I can't see how you can improve on that. Mm. I want to go forward a little bit in time. We've been talking a lot about Lippmann and the kind of mid-century technocratic liberal milieu, like largely inspired by kind of progressive ideals of an expert-run society, ostensibly. And I'm curious about how this story changes, if it does, in the 70s onwards, as the Democratic Party embraces a more neoliberal turn. Do you think theories in the liberal intelligentsia about expertise and technocracy change at all as the state kind of hollows itself out in many ways? Well, the what happened in the 1970s is critical to the modern period. Uh, in the political arena in the United States, uh, there are two political parties, but uh, they've been properly termed uh, a single party, the business party, with two factions a more extreme pro-business faction, a less extreme pro-business faction, which had uh, interests of working people and the poor, the Republicans and the Democrats. In many ways, they were almost indistinguishable at the moder- in the moderate range. Uh, you go back to Eisenhower's uh, talks. Uh, it's almost amazing to read them now. Sounds like a raving left-wing maniac. Talks about how uh, anybody who doesn't accept the New Deal doesn't belong in our political system. Anyone who tries to impinge on the right of working people to organize, uh, we don't want them in our political system. That's the last conservative president. After that, you just get reactionaries. That all changed in the 70s. The... uh, Republicans moved to a form of savage capitalism. It's called neoliberalism. goes back to the 1920s. And we might recall that the guru, the leading figure of neoliberalism, Ludwig von Mises, back in the 1920s, uh, was strongly pro-Mussolini. He, say, regarded Mussolini as 
the savior of Western civilization because he had crushed the working class. So it's all sort of sitting there, uh, pick it up. Uh, most of it is based on fraud. It's a lot of fancy talk about markets and so on, but they don't believe a word of it. Mm. The, uh, there's massive market interference in the to the benefit of the rich and powerful. Just it's uh, you guys, working people and middle class, you're out there in the market trying to survive somehow, not us. <laughs> like we have a powerful state to support us. Yeah. Case in point, Silicon Valley, right, which is a creature of um, of public investment. Um, but one of the things I wanted to ask you about Silicon Valley is that there's this strange kind of new intellectual strands of some people call neo-reactionaries. Um, and I'm thinking about a strand of right-wing thought that follows maybe James Burnham, Michael Lind, and now you see kind of populist articulations of this like Tucker Carlson and then far, far right figures like Curtis Yarvin who have a really keen critique of elite bureaucracy. It does seem like there's a lot of intellectual energy, at least rhetorically, on the right now about critiquing bureaucratic power, which in some way resonates with anarchism, in other ways not at all. But I'm just curious from your point of view, what do you make of the kind of right neo-populist critique of expertise and technocracy. There's a little uh, gap in uh, what they're saying. Yeah. What they're actually in favor of is the worst kind of uh, autocracy and domination that exists, namely by unconstrained, concentrated private power. That's the bottom line. Let's get rid of anything that gets in the way of the very rich and powerful to maximize their wealth and power. Absolutely the worst kind of tyranny you can imagine. That's what's the unexpressed part of that critique of bureaucracy. We've just seen it in the Supreme Court decision, very interesting this Supreme Court decision on West Virginia versus EPA. Yeah. It was a stake. It's all framed in very democratic, uh, libertarian rhetoric. But if you think about it for a minute, just think what it says. Uh, The technical issue was, uh, can uh, the EPA regulate emissions in in particular plants? And the decision by the Roberts Court is that this is a major issue, has to be settled by Congress. Congressional legislation has to do it. Well, the fact of the matter is that the way the modern state works, Congress passes in the days when Congress is functional, not today. <laughs> so the authorities delegated. Well, the line of these anti-bureaucratic people is we have to get rid of the administrative state. Mm-hmm. Everything has to go back to popular decision in Congress, which is totally impossible. So the end result, the bottom line is let the private corporations do anything they feel like. That's what comes out as soon as you think it through for five minutes. You're absolutely right. I agree with you 100%. But one of the things that I'm I'm curious about is I think that a lot of uh, people get kind of swept up or wrapped up in these kind of anti-bureaucratic politics for justified, maybe not justified, but understandable reasons. Like they're disillusioned with bureaucratic authority, they're disillusioned with government in general, and these people offer a repudiation. And of course, I want to critique them, but I also don't want to just reify the existing liberal technocratic order. So how how do you mount a kind of sophisticated critique of unjust hierarchies and bureaucratic authorities that doesn't then serve this kind of right-wing agenda? I mean, what what should our approach to some of these politics be as a left in general, I guess is what I'm asking. As always, it's it's useful to look at concrete cases. There are some very interesting studies. So take, uh, there's a great book by sociologist uh, Arlie Hochschild, forgotten what it's called, but she, Berkeley, 
sociologist, left sociologist, uh, went to live in the Louisiana bayous, probably the most reactionary place in the world. And uh, she found some very interesting things uh, quite related to this. So she, uh, they're living in a, the poor people there are living in what's a kind of cancer alley, huge amounts of cancer. They understand why. It's all pollutants from the chemical plants and so on. But they vote for the right wing congressmen who support this. And when she, and she was really interested in looking into the nuts and bolts of it and found out a lot. So for example, she's talking to right wing environmentalists who want to deal with the problem, but are strongly opposed to the government bureaucracy. And their picture when they describe it is this. They said, look, uh, some guy comes down from Washington wearing a fancy suit and tells us you can't fish because the water's polluted. Well, there goes my livelihood. He doesn't do anything about those chemical plants over there. Why should I pay attention to him? He says, the science says you can't fake fish. Is he dealing with the issues? Of course, I hate bureaucracy. That's what it is. It's telling me I can't live. Uh, we saw the same thing uh, in the last election. One of the striking things in the last election was the shift in votes in uh, places like South Texas. These are uh, regions which mostly Mexican-American regions which hadn't voted for a Republican in a hundred years. A lot of them switched to the Republicans. There's a lot of study of it. Take a close look. What was found was you've got communities that survive on oil production. A bureaucrat from Washington comes down and tells them, uh, look, it's environmentally terrible. You got to stop oil production. But what happens to my family? It's bad for the environment. Some scientists told me that. And you and your family can starve if you want. That's not going to work. That's pretty much what happened in the Yellow Vest movement in, uh, in uh, France a couple of years ago. Same thing. Uh, the slogan was, you guys are worrying about the end of the earth. I'm worrying about the end of the month. You know? Well, you're not going to work on the end of the month. No reason why people should pay attention to you. Mm. My last question is really about some of these anti-democratic assumptions within academia that we've been talking about. There's a deep mistrust of popular intelligence. And you've never been that way, despite rising to the height of intellectual culture. I'm wondering how you maintain that. And, and if you have just a general message for left intellectuals about this question of the popular intelligence. I've never found it very difficult. <laughs> for one thing, it's just a fact about the general public. They're not stupid and ignorant. Uh, and there's, as we were talking about before, uh, a lot of uh, tradition of intellectual interest and creativity in the general public and the working classes, which can either be stimulated or suppressed. Uh, you have your choice. If you have educational programs where you beat it out of people, like teaching to test, of course, you create stupid people. If you encourage it and stimulate it, okay, you get people who can take these citizens of an actual democratic society. John Dewey's uh, approach, which I sort of grew up with myself. Yeah, uh, These are choices. Uh, if you spend your time in elite circles, as in fact I've done most of my life, you can't be overly impressed, frankly. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a beautiful note, I think, to end on. Uh, Professor Noam Chomsky, thank you so much for your time. It's been a delight and an honor to speak with you. Thank you. That was Professor Noam Chomsky. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Darts and Letters is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, Canada's largest network of left-wing podcasts. We're also now syndicated on the New Books Network. 
Our program is produced by Jay Coburn, Mark Apollonio, and Ren Bangert. Our marketing assistant is Ian Souten. As always, our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber. Graphic designs are by Dakota Coop, and I'm your host and editor, Gordon Caddick. This episode was part of a wider series that looks at the politics of technology and techno-utopian thinking. It received funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The scholarly leads on this project are Professors Tanner Murleys at Ontario Tech University and Imra Zeman at the University of Toronto Scarborough. They both provided research and editorial guidance to this episode. We are also backed by our generous patrons. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Thanks for listening. Check back in next week. Thank you.